As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an Apostrophe Podcast production. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. We waited for hours and hours in a succession of foyers and meeting rooms, only to be told that we didn't have what it takes. The news was devastating. Andrew Ridgely. When Yorgios Penyatu was a wee lad living in the outskirts of London, he had a singular dream, to become a pilot. It was a goal that thrilled his father, a Greek immigrant with big aspirations for his offspring. Yorgios, or George, said his dad had arrived in England from Greece with 20 shillings in his pocket. He worked tirelessly for two decades and managed to build his wife and three children a beautiful home in the countryside. 
George later said it was nothing short of heroic. But at the time, it felt heavy. It was abundantly clear the expectations for his father's only son were as high as the curly hair on his head. There was a lot to live up to. But by the time he was seven, his parents discovered young George needed glasses. As fate would have it, he was nearsighted and colorblind, meaning he could never become a pilot. It was crushing. In school, George says he was the popular kid. He even considered himself to be quite cute. Everything was hunky-dory until his parents informed him they were moving. His father had bought his own Greek restaurant just outside London, and while they renovated their new home in the area, the family was to move into the apartment directly above the restaurant. So in the evenings, George would pop downstairs and grab some takeout, or late-night ice cream. And before he knew it, he had gained weight. A lot of weight. Suddenly, when he looked in the mirror, he didn't see the popular cute kid from his old school. Now, he saw a chubby, glasses-wearing, curly-haired newbie, devoid of all self-confidence. And come September, it was time for his first day at Bushy Mead's secondary school. As George stepped into the classroom, he had an experience forced upon so many new students. The teacher brought him to the front of the room and introduced him to the class, mispronouncing his name appallingly, then asked if anyone would like to be responsible for showing him around campus and looking after him. There was a cripplingly long silence. George's face turned beet red. Then, out of nowhere from the front row, a handsome young man in a green blazer and a loosened tie put up his hand. His name was Andrew Ridgely. In his memoir, Andrew Ridgely describes his first impression of George like this. He was a studious and shy, broccoli-haired teen, wearing oversized steel-frame specs with a muffin-top waistline and a wardrobe full of questionable outfits. Ridgely, on the other hand, couldn't have been more opposite. George says he had clearly skipped the awkward adolescent phase. He made it all look so easy, being desired by every girl and envied by every boy. He was cool and outgoing, clever and mischievous, and had been plopped in the front row of the class so the teacher could keep a close eye on him. Ridgely said he'd never been given the opportunity to take care of the new kid because he'd never been deemed responsible enough. But this time, no one else put up their hand, so the teacher had no choice. Plus, it sounded better than focusing on his studies. So Ridgely took George under his wing. Ridgely said he learned a few fast facts about his new friend. His name was impossible, his dad owned a restaurant, and they lived near each other, which would make for easy misadventures should they hit it off. But once they covered the basics, there was nothing but silence. Ridgely started to regret taking on the role of chaperone, and he could feel the teacher's eye on them, 
no doubt wondering why they were just sitting there, letting the awkwardness wash over them. So Ridgely reached into the back of his mind and asked the first generic question he could think of. He said, so what music are you into? Ridgely's gamble paid off. He watched George's face light up at the mere mention of music. George said his favorite band was Queen because he loved Freddie Mercury. Ridgely breathed a sigh of relief because he idolized Brian May. Maybe the pair would get into misadventures after all. With that jumping off point, the boys realized they actually did have a lot in common. They had both toyed with the idea of piloting a commercial jet. They both worshipped at the altar of John Cleese. And they each set aside a half hour every Thursday evening to catch Top of the Pops, Britain's answer to American Bandstand. After school, they'd go to record stores together and sift through milk crates full of ELO, Elton John, Peter Gabriel, the Bee Gees, Genesis, and David Bowie. They'd spend hours studying the record sleeves and save for months to pool their money and buy a single album. Their families began to catch on that music was becoming a big part of their son's lives and a hobby worth nurturing. So George's parents gave him their old gramophone and three of their old 45s. Two by the Supremes, one Tom Jones. What George didn't know was that back in the day, his parents were rock and roll dancers. In fact, they had met at a dance. He'd later find out that all the photos of them dancing were hidden from him in the house because they didn't want to give him any ammunition to say, well, you guys did it. George said he would wind up that gramophone every single day. One of the records had a crack in it, but he knew precisely the moment the arm would fall off and would slide it right back into place without skipping a beat. Eventually, his parents bought him a drum set and a cassette player with a little microphone attached. And he and Ridgely sat in their bedrooms recording songs from the radio and making up dance routines. Ridgely's parents bought him a white Fender Telecaster. He says it became his most prized possession. He'd slide it out from underneath his bed every night to marvel at the rosewood fretboard and teach himself a few tunes. George and Ridgely were two peas. As they got older, they saw concerts together in the city, and Ridgely used his mischievous ways to sneak them into dive bars and underground clubs to watch up-and-coming acts. Suddenly, music stopped being just a hobby for them. They spent every second of every day either listening to music or talking about it. Maybe one day, they'd become actual recording artists. But George's parents were quick to throw a wrench in that plan. They said Ridgely couldn't come over anymore. George's parents thought Ridgely was a bad influence and ushering George down the wrong path. Ridgely had stopped feigning interest in school and had instead decided to channel all his energy into two things, his white Telecaster and trying to convince George to start a band. 
But George's hardworking father was having none of that. Music was a fine hobby, but his son was to focus all his time and energy into getting good grades so that he could go to a good university and land a high-caliber job. And, as he always said, do better than he did. But though grades were a priority for George, his best friend and his cassette player were edging school out of first place. So he continued to hang out with Ridgely, despite his father's insistence. Ridgely started jotting down lyrics and playing the guitar, and George banged his drums. As a kid, George had sung in the Boy Scouts, and Ridgely had sung in a school play or two. Between the two of them, they had the bones for a band. But Ridgely wanted to be a real band, with a name and original music, and perhaps even a third or fourth member. He was convinced that between the two of them, they had the juice to become pop sensations. They just needed to commit fully. George felt himself being pulled in two very different directions. One night, Ridgely heard a local band called The Quiffs was in need of a drummer for a gig. So he recommended George to the group. Ridgely told them George was cool, had rhythm, and a real feel for music. So the group called George to come rehearse. The unofficial audition went well. Musically, George fit right in. But immediately afterward, the quiff said, thanks, but no thanks. When George asked what the problem was, they told him he just didn't look the part. Simple as that. The boy with the pop bottle glasses, baby fat, and broccoli hair was mortified. It fed the narrative he'd been telling himself for years, that he'd probably never be attractive enough, certainly not enough to be a pop star, and certainly not without Ridgely by his side. George was crushed, but was comforted by his friend. Ridgely said in his book that he told George it was their loss and a big mistake on the part of the Quiffs. But George's rejection also left Ridgely secretly relieved. Now he could get back to trying to convince George to form a band with him instead. He said, who knows? Maybe George would have saved the Quiffs from their collision course with obscurity. But Ridgely would soon realize he and his best friend were destined for a very different story. Over the following years, George put a lot of emphasis into altering his appearance in a desperate attempt to climb out from Ridgely's shadow and gain a little confidence. He plucked his eyebrow, singular. He upgraded his wardrobe, and most noticeably, he got contact lenses. Those were a game changer. And eventually, he felt confident enough to try his hand at busking. He and another friend named David made their way into a London train station, George the singer and David the accompaniment. And soon it became a ritual. Every Friday, they would skip school and earn a little cash. Sensing his newfound confidence and intrigued by the addition of David, Ridgely decided once and for all to put his foot down. He called up George and said, 
Today is the day. We are starting a band. After that, Ridgely says everything fell into place. They recruited another musician who lived just down the street and Ridgely's brother. For someone who got next to nothing out of school, Ridgely had really zeroed in on his spark. He kicked into band leader gear and made them a rehearsal schedule and found them spaces to play. He took on the bulk of the songwriting and decided he and George would be the front men and lead singers. At first, George's voice was good, but not blow your mind good. Ridgely says it would take some time to learn how to inject some of his own personality into his sound. In the meantime, they wrote two songs. One was called Rude Boy, and the other called The Executive. Neither Ridgely nor George had any formal training. They barely knew how to play their own instruments. But something inside George just clicked. He got music. And somehow, they were able to bang out full arrangements for their new little group. They decided to call themselves The Executive. Because as five wannabe rock stars from a small town, they couldn't have been further from corporate life. And that very fact started causing major tension over at George's house. As the executive kicked into high gear, Ridgely started booking gigs. He had promotional photos taken of the group and they pooled their pennies to record a demo tape of their eight best tunes. And one day, George decided to pop said demo tape into the car while he and his father were out for a drive. Hoping for a glowing review of his unparalleled vocal stylings and masterful arrangements, his father instead told him to stop wasting his time. That every young boy wants to be a rock star, to stop sneaking around with Ridgely, and for the love of God, focus on his schoolwork. Their first official gig was exceptionally nerve-wracking. Having attended many a gig in the area, they were familiar with the venues, what constituted a sizable crowd, and what was a bust. But as they took the stage, they found themselves face-to-face with a packed house. It was thrilling. They were even summoned back on stage for multiple encores. Whatever they were doing, it was working. Between Ridgely's confidence and the reactions from the audience, any doubts George had about focusing on music began to fade away. They added two more members to their band, friends of theirs who could help them create a fuller sound. Ridgely was having the time of his life. For the first time, he saw his future and it looked bright, interesting, successful. The executive could actually make it. He had faith. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Through a mutual friend, Ridgely was introduced to a man who worked in the talent scouting department at a small record label. His name was Mark Dean. Dean came to watch them rehearse, and Ridgely said in his memoir that Dean thought the executive was a little rough around the edges, but that the chemistry between the two front men was palpable. So he passed their demo onto the higher-ups at his label. But... They rejected them immediately. Ridgely was crushed. It was probably too good to be true. That blow really hindered the executive's momentum and the confidence of its band members. Three of them decided to bail on the dream. What was once a group of seven suddenly shrunk down to a quartet. So they decided to regroup. They wrote more songs, better songs, and really refine their tone. So much so that suddenly their original demo tape didn't hold up anymore. They'd have to record a new one. If they'd learned anything from their first attempt, it was that the chemistry between George and Ridgely was their edge. That spark was what had intrigued the talent scout in the first place 
and prompted him to even entertain passing their demo tape onto his boss. But that spark was next to impossible to convey on a demo alone. So this time, the two frontmen decided they'd travel into London together with the executive's new and improved tape and demand meetings with all the real executives in the fancy downtown offices. Ridgely prepared a speech, and they hopped the train. When they arrived in the lobbies of the fancy high-rise buildings, Ridgely decided to employ a tactic he'd picked up studying his idols of rock history. He marched up to the receptionist and told them, you'll be making a huge mistake if you pass up on the opportunity to meet with us. But those record companies were happy to make that huge mistake. In the most depressing walking tour of London's premier record labels you can imagine, they collected a host of helpful feedback. One, they were nobodies. Two, other bands with similar interests were doing it better. And three, none of their songs had hit potential. Embarrassed and distraught, Ridgely and George returned back home to deliver the unfortunate news to their bandmates. And just when they thought they had maxed out on rejection for the day, their two remaining bandmates quit the group. They had more promising prospects, and the executive was clearly a sinking ship. Then there were two. The front men became the only men. Ridgely mailed their demo tape to other labels, but never got so much as a rejection letter until he had no choice but to face the music. The executive had expired. Unsure of where to go from there, George Michael auditioned for another group, a soul-funk band out of London in need of a singer. But he was turned away almost immediately. They said, you aren't what we're looking for. George was approaching the end of his studies. And despite the fact he'd faced nothing but rejection, he'd had a taste of life as a musician, and there was no going back. He knew he was never going to university, so he sat his parents down and broke the news. His father was furious and issued his son an ultimatum. He said they would no longer foot the bill. George had to get a job immediately, and if he didn't secure a record contract within the next six months, he couldn't live under their roof any longer. The gravy train had ended, so George started a laundry list of odd jobs, including washing dishes at his father's restaurant, a stock boy at a homeware store, he ripped tickets at the local movie theater, then, he landed a rather interesting gig, a DJ at a dinner dance restaurant. Every night, George would take the bus to the restaurant where he worked as a DJ, playing indistinct music to a backdrop of rattling silverware and chatter then urging guests who'd finished their meals to take to the dance floor. For someone who loved music as much as George, it sounded like a pretty good gig, but it wasn't. It was boring. He wasn't playing any music he actually liked. There was a strict 
no disco policy. As Ridgely put it, too much ABBA or the Jacksons might have put people off their chicken Kiev. Then one afternoon on the bus ride to work, George heard a melody in his head and started messing around with lyrics. George thought he might be onto something, so he sang the tune for Ridgely. What George didn't know was that Ridgely had also been working on a song of his own. He had put together a hauntingly beautiful chord progression that was much slower than anything they'd ever written before. And when he heard George's lyrics, he knew it was a perfect fit. That song was the first time Ridgely realized George could write a ballad. They called it Careless Whisper. When George played the demo tape for his family, they didn't beat around the bush. His sisters called it Tuneless Whisper. But Ridgely's confidence in the lyrics was enough to give George a boost, and he got a little gutsy. George brought the demo tape with him to work one night, and in the middle of the pre-assembled set list he was required to play, George snuck in Careless Whisper. It was a long shot, because no one knew the song, and people like to dance to songs they know. But through his job, George was basically given a little test audience. No one had to know it was his voice on the record. And he knew if he didn't go for it, it was a wasted chance that he'd been given. So George popped on the cassette. And before he knew it, the dance floor was packed. It was overwhelming. As he watched the crowd, he felt his anxieties about being a songwriter melt away. They had a hit on their hands. George told Ridgely that this was it. They had each other and they'd found their sound. If they could fill an entire album with careless whispers, they'd be set. So they started writing. The following months were spent writing music during the day and dancing in clubs at night. It became a running joke that while they danced, Ridgely would shout out, wham, bam, I'm the man, and throw his fist in the air. So the duo wrote a song called Wham Rap, which was a big middle finger to society, telling them they had to stop dancing and get a nine to five job instead but they couldn't approach labels without a band name. Last time they'd forged the band first and the music second. This time, the music was flowing so quickly they hadn't stopped to name their group. They wanted something that would capture their passion and energy for music, as well as their friendship. So they decided to call themselves Wham. But not just Wham. Wham! Exclamation point comic book style. By this point, George's father's deadline was looming. They had almost no time and almost no money to make a proper demo of Wham's first record. George asked his parents for a four-track recorder for his birthday, but there was no chance they were going to invest in his ill-advised dreams. They said, no way. What they'd buy him was an education to get a real job. So instead, the boys had to rent a four-track recorder for one day. It was all they could afford. In that one day, they recorded 
Wham Rap, half of another song called Club Tropicana, and even less of Careless Whisper. It was the best they could do. Yet, Ridgely later said somehow they had the confidence to start shopping their half, no, less than half, their one-third of a completed demo tape around to record labels. Ridgely decided to contact the only talent scout whose phone number they had, Mark Dean, the man who had turned them down as the executive. This time, though, they had a more streamlined sound as a duo with infinitely better music. Plus, Dean had recently signed the group Soft Cell, who dropped that year's massive hit record, Tainted Love. But with that success, Dean became harder to get a hold of. And while they waited for him to return their call, they made a list of other labels to contact. They'd learned from last time that just showing up to be rejected in the lobby was a waste of time. The offices of the people with the signing power were well guarded. They'd have to get clever. And lucky for them, clever was Ridgely's middle name. This time, they'd play good cop, bad cop. They'd walk up to the reception desk and pretend they'd arrived for a very important meeting. When the receptionist couldn't find the fictional meeting in the appointment book, George would turn irate. But Ridgely would be sympathetic to the blunder and ask if, since they came all the way in for the meeting, they could still be squeezed in anyway. Usually the ruse didn't work, but once in a while, a flustered and apologetic receptionist escorted them upstairs, including that of the renowned record label, EMI. They made their way into the fancy office, and right there in front of them, an impatient EMI executive listened to 15 seconds of wham rap. Then he stopped the tape. He told them they were obviously just another synthesizer band and that they were wasting their time. It was a hard pass. They sat across the desks from executives at Chrysalis, A&M, Virgin, and countless others, but every single one rejected Wham. George later said these people wouldn't even wait until the bass had kicked in to usher them out the door. They just told them they were terrible and sent them away. Come back next millennium was the general consensus. George clung to his careless whisper triumph at the dinner dance restaurant like a flagpole in a windstorm. That must have meant something. But even Ridgely, whose confidence seemed firmly rooted deep in his cells, was struggling to keep his spirits up. Then... The phone rang at Ridgely's parents' house. It was Mark Dean. Dean offered to meet with them at a pub nearby. When they arrived, he was already there waiting at a table. And as soon as the pair sat down, Dean told them he was going to offer them a record deal. Ridgely was stunned. To avoid the risk of looking like amateurs, they kept their cool, and instead of high-fiving, subtly patted each other on the back behind the table. What they didn't realize was that Dean had just started his own label under CBS called 
inner vision. And he was looking for acts to fill his roster and prove himself to his bosses fast. He told them not to get too excited. They were nobodies after all. Dean said for him this would be, quote, taking a punt. But right then and there, they signed a record contract. It all happened so fast, but it felt like complete validation. Someone believed in them enough to take a chance. Ridgely took a step back and realized he was now a recording artist and had the paperwork to prove it. And he was doing it all with his best friend. Life was good. But when Ridgely got home that night and told his dad about the news, he said, that's very nice, Andrew. But when are you going to get a proper job? The first step was to record a professional demo, this time with InnerVision footing the bill. George and Ridgely couldn't believe how amazing their songs sounded with backing vocals and professional musicians coming out of studio-quality speakers. It was a dream come true. They made next to no income from the label at that point, just 45 pounds a week. Money was really, really tight. InnerVision arranged for a few performances, mostly dancing and lip-syncing to their own music, while a club DJ took a smoke break between sets. To add to the theatricality of it all, they brought along two backup dancers, one an ex-girlfriend of Ridgely's and another woman they'd met who had a great sense of rhythm. And before they knew it, their first single, Wham Rap, was ready to be pressed into vinyl. But when they looked at the test vinyl, there was a problem. In the songwriting credits, they realized George's birth name, Yorgios Peñatu, just wasn't going to work. Should they be so lucky to make it onto the radio or television programs, it would be impossible for presenters and DJs to pronounce, not to mention the memorability of it all. Richley said it might be better to have a name that rolled rather than gurgled off the tongue. So the pop star hopeful decided then and there to change his name to George Michael. George being the anglicized version of his real name, and Michael was a name he'd always liked, even going as far back as primary school. Ridgely said George Michael had a certain star quality to it, like Kirk Douglas. Little did they know, that decision would change so much more than the name on the vinyl. It would become a suit of armor for George, allowing him to live outside himself and take on a whole new persona. He later said in his autobiography that he modeled George Michael off a friend of his, someone the world could love and who had the confidence to be a star. Though he never asked, Ridgely always suspected that friend was him. After officially releasing the Wham Rap single, George Michael, Andrew Ridgely, and their backup dancers spent the next months on a mini tour, trying to drum up excitement around the underground scene. But it was far from glamorous. They played six clubs a night, 
Half the time, there wasn't even a discernible stage. They were just plopped in the middle of a dance floor, surrounded by drunken 20-somethings who probably didn't even notice they were there. Other times, people got aggressive or stepped on their mic cords, literally pulling the plug on the performance. Then, during the day, they practiced their choreography at each other's parents' houses. It was exhausting. But as time went on, by some miracle, they started to get a little bit of press. One music writer called them socially aware funk, and another said they were, quote, a group to watch. They were interviewed a handful of times and had their picture taken, which Ridgely said was tricky, mainly because they only had one good outfit each, but also because George was very specific about photo angles, fearing looking unattractive on camera. But despite the decent press, the photos and the club gigs, Wham Rap would fail to make a mark on the UK singles chart landing at number 105. Nowhere near the top 40, which was the threshold for radio play and a shot at television appearances. It was a colossal disappointment, and they could tell the people at their label, InnerVision, were getting nervous. Their second single was a track they'd written called Young Guns, Go For It. It peaked at number 48, close, but still not enough, and it only slid backwards from there. Ridgely said this is when he got seriously worried. After everything they'd been through, he couldn't believe this might be the end. He said they were staring failure right in the face, and George Michael took it really, really personally. But they kept clubbing, per their label's instructions, and one night, They were performing their two failed singles in yet another room of drunkards when their choreography caught the eye of one clubgoer in particular. As it turned out, she was a booker for a BBC children's show called Saturday Superstore that often featured up-and-coming bands that would appeal to kids. It was a huge deal. This wasn't some unknown kids program. It was a source of massive exposure for Wham, and one they were smart enough not to pass up. The following weekend, they appeared on the show. It went great and sent their second single, Young Guns, up to number 42. So close, but not enough. George Michael turned to Ridgely and said, Top of the Pops would never stoop to putting on number 42. Ridgely and George wondered if this was going to be the end of their story, whether they'd have to go back home with their tails between their legs and tell their fathers they were right all along, that it was time for them to give up and get a real job. It was the lowest moment of their lives. Then they got a piece of information that would blow their little bushy meads minds. Top of the Pops had a last-minute cancellation. It felt so surreal that they knew it had to either be a dream or a joke. Top of the Pops was such a formative part of their childhoods. It was, well, the top. Only legitimate groups played on the show. 
groups who would go on to become massive successes after their appearance. Now, it was their turn. The studio wouldn't tell them who the other band was that had dropped out. So Ridgely and George spent most of the time leading up to the performance waiting for that mystery group to call and say they were back in, mentally preparing themselves for the inevitable emotional crash that would ensue. The night before the show, they were put up in a hotel in London that Ridgely said was probably rented by the hour. They were only given one room with one bed. So George Michael had to sleep on a child's cot covered with a stained plastic mattress protector. The next morning, it was November 4th, 1982. The big day. When they got to the studio, they could tell the crew knew they were a last-minute replacement, not a main act. Probably just a flash in the pan. But as they warmed up for their performance, Ridgely stopped to look over at his best friend. He was bare-chested underneath a brown leather vest with cropped blue jeans. He was tanned and fit from months of club dancing. He had his curly hair brushed up and back, short on the sides. He had a look of confidence in his eye. And it occurred to Ridgely, George had morphed into George Michael and was every inch a ready-made pop star. People with clipboards scurried around backstage in a frenzy. The countdown began. This was it. This was their shot. Wham, their band and backup dancers made their way onto the platform. A BBC radio DJ announced their name. George Michael looked at Andrew Ridgely, gave a nod and said, let's do this. Suddenly, their fizzy, irritatingly catchy tune, Young Guns, started to play. The saxophone blared, and the pair performed their now meticulously tight choreography. A crowd of studio fans bounced around them in fedoras and neon dresses. The energy was infectious. The camera couldn't keep its lens off the once insecure, chubby boy with pop bottle glasses and broccoli hair. He was magnetic. The song ended and the word wham appeared across the screen. As they stood on stage while the applause echoed across the studio around them, they had no idea what lay ahead. They didn't know young guns would soar to number three nearly overnight. They didn't know the re-release of Wham Rap would crack the top 10. They didn't know their debut album, Fantastic, would go to number one in the UK and stay there for two consecutive weeks, remaining on the charts for 116 weeks total. And they didn't know their next album would be even bigger. All they knew in that moment was that as they caught their breath under the hot studio lights and looked at one another, they were beaming. And as they walked off stage, George Michael looked at Andrew Ridgely and said, This is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Ridgely nodded and thought, and there's nothing now to stop us.
is a story about what happens when talent is fueled by ambition. When people think of Wham!, they inevitably think of George Michael. And it's easy to say Andrew Ridgely was just along for the ride. But when you analyze the beats of their story, it reveals a very different dynamic. Andrew Ridgely was the burning ambition. First, he rescues an insecure George that first day at school. It was Ridgely who had the vision to form a real band, to write original music. It was Andrew Ridgely that kept hounding a hesitant George Michael to commit to the dream. In those early days, it was Andrew Ridgely who handled the bulk of the songwriting responsibilities. Ridgely was the band leader. He scheduled all the rehearsals. He found places for the band to play. He arranged to record the band's first demo tape. He persuades the first talent scout to come out and see them perform. It was Andrew Ridgely that convinces George they should shop their demo tape around to record labels. It was Ridgely's bravado that got them past receptionists with his good cop, bad cop scheme. And when they managed to get in front of record executives, it was Ridgely who did the talking. It was Andrew Ridgely that kept mailing their demo tapes out to record labels. And even though they got no response and were rejected over and over and over again, it is Ridgely who keeps the flame alive. George Michael fed off Ridgely's confidence. They started to write great songs together like Careless Whisper. It was Ridgely's Wham Bam I'm the Man line that would inspire their first big song, Wham Rap. And of course, inspire the band's very name. When George Michael's towering songwriting talent finally emerges, Andrew Ridgely realizes if the band was to succeed, he had to take a back seat. It was incredibly difficult for Ridgely to make that decision. He struggled with being left out of the songwriting, but he knew in his heart it was the right thing to do. When someone submerges their ego for the greater good, it's a rare and remarkable thing. But even when he was no longer contributing to the songwriting anymore, he was still inspiring. One morning, Ridgely left a note on his family's fridge door that said, Mom, wake me up before you go-go. George Michael saw that note. The rest is history. Elvis once said, Ambition is a dream with a V8 engine. While the late, great George Michael was a superstar talent, don't forget Andrew Ridgely. He was the V8 engine that kept pushing through all the bumps and failures and rejections. Without ambition, you can't rise to the top of the pops. Never, ever give up. Albums sold in the 1980s alone, 30 million. U.S. Billboard number ones, three. Brit Awards, two. Number of fans who try to get tickets to their farewell concert, one million. You've got to have faith of faith of faith of.
The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you that our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.